All right. I think we are good to go. So as uh, Bill mentioned, we're going to be finishing out Romans chapter 6. So if you want to go ahead and turn there. And while you do so, I will get my notes brought up. I believe it was uh, Casey took us through the previous section, um, ended with verse 14 there, talking about sin not having dominion over us since we are not under the law, but under grace. So I'll be touching on that just because um, it kind of dovetails with verse 15 there. But let's just say another quick word of... uh, a prayer to, to the Father and the, ask him to bless this time, and then we'll jump right into these verses. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and for your blessings. We just ask once again, as our brother mentioned just a minute ago, a blessing on this time. Pray that you would give me the words to speak and that you would uh, cause only the words that you would have us to hear and retain to, to stay with us this morning. Father, I pray that you would take me out of the message completely and just uh, speak through me as we also thought about in that song just a bit ago. We thank you for the the Naritas and their faithfulness to you and their service and spreading the word and shining as a light to those around them. Just pray that you would continue to bless them as they enter into the next chapter and as they continue to move and pack and pray that you would help that all to go smoothly. We thank you again for all that you do for us. Thank you for the fellowship downstairs. Thank you for each and every one here this morning. Thank you for those who are uh, also part of our our group, but not with us this morning. Pray that you would just be with them, encourage them, and take care of them, Father. We just thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I would also ask your forgiveness uh, in advance because I am still a little bit congested. I'm not uh, communicable anymore, but just a cold classic or allergies or whatever it is. Um, So I might be sniffling and maybe coughing on Mike a little bit here, but you know, you guys aren't in the splash zone, the rest of you, so you're safe. I'm just kidding. He's covering up his mouth, but none of you can see that, so (laughs) So I had to to pick on him. All right, so let's read through this section in Romans chapter 6, and then we'll go through verse by verse, and and we'll talk about it. Reading in the ESV, Romans 6, starting in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves— You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification 
and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And once again, may the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. The classic verse there to end out the chapter that you all well know, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And amen to that. So if we go back to the beginning, as I mentioned at the outset, um, this is following on the heels of the passage that Casey covered, and specifically verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. And I feel even though there's a break in my Bible, probably as there is in many of your Bibles, mine has a subtext of slaves to righteousness, but I feel like those verses have to be read together because he is saying, and then he's asking one of his classic rhetorical questions. So because of that statement that I just made, are we to sin because we are under grace and not under the law anymore? And then he answers it. It's not meant for you know, us to answer or something to kind of be left out there as a mystery, but it's a rhetorical question. He asks it and then he answers it. And that's all throughout Romans as we've seen, as we've been going through these chapters. It's, it's a classic Paul rhetorical question. Should we continue to sin knowing that we are under grace? And it's a similar question to the one that we looked at at the beginning of chapter six, where he asks basically, and I'm going to paraphrase here, um, should we continue to sin so that grace may abound even more. And if you read the verses before that, which is just as critical to do so that you can put that, that kind of pairing or couplet together, he's saying, well, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more to cover for that. So there's boundless grace. But I think knowing his audience, knowing those who were there and some of the things that they might try to jump to and kind of pick at with his message, they might say, oh, so are you saying then that we should just sin more? Because you could kind of see where they're kind of connecting those strings erroneously. Well, grace is good, right? Grace is a, is a great thing and we want more good things. So if we want more good things, we just keep sinning and then you have more grace. And it's like, well, no, that argument doesn't hold because we're not to do that. So he asks that rhetorical question knowing that it might be something that they would jump to. And I'm boiling this down very, very simply because a lot of this stuff is written in, in an interesting way. Like we touched on it even in this chapter, which is an interesting irony, but he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of our natural limitations. He's using the master and the, 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 the slave similes here because of our natural limitations. And it puts it into a context that the people not only of that time, but of that time in that region, what was going on and having bond servants and slaves and things like that, they're able to understand that word picture now as it's being made and as it's being uh, attributed to spiritual things. But just like that same rhetorical question at the beginning of chapter six, the answer to the rhetorical question here is by no means or may it never be or basically no, we're not to be doing those things. McDonald in his commentary puts it this way. He says, we are free from the law, but we're not lawless. We're not lawless. We're free from the law, but we're not lawless. So the first question, again, at the beginning of chapter six is kind of to cover the thought that it's okay to keep sinning under the pretense that more grace would abound. Whereas, whereas this one kind of covers the thought that 
we can sin because we're not under that law anymore. That law that kind of pointed out what sin was by its, by its uh, you know, don't do this, don't do this. Okay, now I know what not to do. We know as humans, and I know as a father of children, that the more you tell someone don't do this, the more they want to do it. But again, it kind of, it kind of sets up what not to do and shows you what not to do. So again, asking that rhetorical question, okay, we're not under that anymore, so can we sin? Like, is it okay? Because we're under a law of grace, and we know what grace means. If you have that, that grace, the grace that was shown to us by uh, the Lord when he, when he sent his son, when God sent his son to die for us on the cross, when you get unmerited favor, something that you completely didn't deserve. So now that we have so much grace, I mean, we could just keep sinning and, and we're good, right? But the, the, very, the very next verses answer the, the thoughts there, right? So as you kind of transition into, into verse 16, we get the, we get the answers to that, that thought. So this is kind of supporting it. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. I thought that was worded in an interesting way, but there was a lot of thoughts that I had related to this verse specifically. You enslave yourself to that which you present yourself as an obedient servant. So when I first read it, a thought jumped into my head that this could be used as an argument by those who may believe that you can lose your salvation if you are actually well and truly saved and in the hand of the Father that you can lose your salvation. Because I almost could see it as kind of like a a sliding scale. And on the one end is sin and death, and on the other hand is righteousness and eternal life. And like, let's say you're right in the middle, and you know today you're obeying righteousness, so you start moving that way. But then tomorrow you sin and you start obeying sin. Oh, you're moving back the other way. But I think that it's important to understand that this is, I think this is talking more about you're giving yourself wholly over to one or the other. I either gave myself wholly over to the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm following after salvation. That doesn't mean that we're never going to sin again. In fact, one thing that I wrote down here that I would say pretty definitively is that we're going to continue sinning every day of our lives until we go to be with the Lord because we are in sinful flesh. Do we want to? No. I think that's the mark of a true Christian. I'll talk about that a little bit later on. But it's not, it's not a sliding scale. There will be times where we sin. There will be backsliding. But I think Satan would use this verse to be like, hey, if you sin enough, if you do something really bad, you're on the bad end of this scale now, and the Lord wants nothing to do with you. He would love nothing more than to let you think that because now he's separating you from the Father. He's separating you, in your mind anyway, he's separating you from that side of, you know, again, if this were a scale. But presenting yourself as an obedient servant to something, it's, it's more than just the circumstances of, of falling into temptation here and there or backsliding. I think that this carries the weight of you decided to reject Christ throughout the entirety of your life and you aligned yourself with sin and, and, and with the world and with evil, or you decided to align yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. So one leads to sanctification and righteousness, as we'll see later on, and the other one leads to, to death. So 
again, as you look at the next verse, this kind of also, you know, continues that thought. Thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. So, you know, it doesn't say you've become slaves of righteousness, but be on your guard that you don't go back to becoming slaves of sin. I think that there is a exhortation for us there, but I don't want it to be taken in the manner of losing your salvation. It's not losing your salvation. The exhortation for us, though, is clear. Um, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but you've become obedient from the heart and have been, having been set free from sin, you have become a slave to righteousness. So again, like I mentioned in the previous verse, does this mean that we will never sin again? No, it doesn't. Unfortunately, we're still in the presence of sin. Christ has taken care of the power of sin. The power of sin, eternal spiritual death, no longer has dominion over those of us who have accepted the free gift of salvation. That's been dealt with by the blood of Christ. Nothing that we could have ever done, the blood of Christ took care of the power of sin. But the presence of sin and the fact that we are inhabiting sinful fleshly bodies is still a very real daily thing. And as I said before, much to our chagrin, we will continue to sin every day of our lives until we go to be with the Lord. And even saying that, it feels like, I don't want to say that. I think people are a little uncomfortable. Like, you know, you might even have your pride pricked by that one and be like, I don't think I sin every day. But if you really examine yourself, I think all of us would not in agreement to that. And it's not even just every day. I mean, you can scope that down into as minute a time series as you want. And it's probably still true, right? Um, But... We do not love it. We do not love to sin. I think that I could speak for each and every one here. This is the way that I wrote it in my notes, so I'll read it just so that I don't get too far off of uh, my thoughts from, from my notes specifically. I don't believe that the mark of a true Christian is someone who doesn't sin. I believe that the mark of a true believer in the Lord is the guilt, shame, and hatred of sin that we feel after we fall into it. So it's not that we're never going to sin again, but if you've sinned and you know that that is sin, you feel guilty and ashamed afterwards. Those who have aligned themselves with the world, who are bondservants and slaves to sin, I don't believe that they feel that way. Unless the Lord is working on them, they like that. They want that. They feel that, again, as our brother mentioned this morning, they don't want to be convicted of the fact that they're living in sin. They want to continue that so they don't have to feel that shame and that guilt when they go do X, Y, Z, whatever, insert, you know, sinful act. So Matthew 6, 24 tells us, and this is why I was in Matthew this morning, but it tells us that we can't serve two masters. You either will hate one and love the other or you'll serve one and despise the other. And in that, it's specifically talking about God and money or mammon or possessions. But if you're following after the world and after sin, you're following after the world and after sin holistically. And if you're following after Christ, you cannot do both. 
So I believe, and this is reaching a little bit forward into probably the next chapter, and I don't want to take too much away from the person who's going to speak on that chapter, whether it be is it, it's me again or depends on how far, I guess, because this is all the way out to verse 15. So we'll see. Um, but Romans seven fifteen, some of my favorite verses, because I think we have a tendency to put people in scriptures up on a pedestal. When you read about these great men and women of the Bible, we lift them up on a pedestal. You look at the life of David, but you could see very real, very, very serious circumstances that David found himself in. Things that Paul mentions, although he may not dive into the specifics, Paul in verse 7 says that he doesn't even understand himself. He doesn't understand how he can keep doing the things that he doesn't want to do and hates And he never does or doesn't do as often the things that he loves and wants to do. And verse 19 of the next chapter sums it up. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And again, whether I preach on that or somebody else does, I don't want to take too much from it. But if you continue to read those verses, he indicates that it's not really him in his heart that's doing it. It's his flesh. And it's a continual war against what he wants to do in the spirit and in his heart and what the flesh wants to do. So concepts from scriptures, again, in verse 19, are often put into, you know, different parallels or different similes so that they're easier for us and also the people of the time to understand. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So there's, there's one thing that I wanted to touch on here. You know, again, I touched on that sliding scale and how I don't believe that's a thing. You know, I believe in... I believe in eternal salvation and not being able to lose your salvation. There's verses in the Bible that talk about that if you see someone who looks like they've lost their salvation, you got to question whether or not they were actually truly saved to begin with. But the takeaway for us, and when I say us, I'm talking to those of you out there who are truly saved. You are truly saved and you're in the hand of the Father. No one can remove you from that. You cannot lose your salvation But if you spend your time being in that moment a slave to sin, giving in to the temptation and doing the things that aren't pleasing to the Father, you're not moving down the scale towards eternal spiritual death. But when you're doing those things, you're not doing things that are going to be building up your treasures in heaven. Satan, in that point in time, is making it so that you are not garnering fruit for the kingdom of heaven, but are instead doing things that aren't really benefiting anyone. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit because it talks about in, in verse 21, what fruit were you actually getting at that time when you were doing all these things that you considered fun, you know, sinfully enjoyable, uh, fulfilling and satiating the desires of the flesh, what, what actual fruit, though, were you getting from that? Maybe temporary enjoyment, but what were you building up in terms of eternity? Nothing. The answer is nothing. You weren't getting any actual fruit. It's not even anything that could be considered or classified as fruit. So 
again, the exhortation, not from a eternal perspective, but in the day to day, as we live out our lives, if Satan provides a temptation and we fall into it while we are in that temptation and doing things that are counter to what the Lord would have us to do, we're not doing the things that he would. And so in that sense, you know, each and every day we should be striving to be living out what it means to be a slave to righteousness, practically acting out what it means to be a slave to righteousness and to be sanctified, as we'll look at later, and to be set apart. So again, using the concepts of slaves and masters, given the culture and practices of the time and in that region, um, that allowed the readers and us as well, you know, a basic understanding of the principles that are being conveyed. So Paul, in these verses, would have them recall their lives prior to the time that they were saved and transformed, because I'm sure that they could recollect back, and I guess this is probably easier for some than others, depending on how much of your life elapsed prior to being saved. I think if you had you know, a good portion of maybe your young uh, adulthood and maybe even your adulthood being unsaved, there would be clear examples where you could say, yeah, I was definitely a slave to sin because I followed after that. I had no remorse. I had no guilt. I just did it. You know, that was the flow of the world. That was the way that I behaved. But it's almost a call here to remember the same way that you went after that stuff. That's the way that you should be going after now Christ and being a slave to righteousness. So in, in verse 19 there, just as you once presented your members just in the same way, as slaves to impurity, so now present your members in that same way as slaves to righteousness. And ultimately, again, they are mentioned that it leads to sanctification, being set apart, being purified, and ultimately made holy. They should now dedicate their bodies and time to acts of righteousness and obedience to God. Excuse me. <clears throat> So verse 20, verse 20 is a very sad verse to me. And this is the one that when Mike talked this morning about people not wanting anything to do with sin or with uh, salvation so that they can continue in sin, my mind was taken here. This verse to me underscores the worldly condition and highlights the reason that people want nothing to do with the good news of the gospel. Being free in regard to righteousness. Being free. Just think about being free, right? Especially in our society, in colloquial conversations with those that you would talk to, being free is good. I mean, you talk about the United States of America. We're largely, you know, enjoying freedoms in this country, um, so when you think about being free, generally has a good connotation, right? You're not a prisoner, you're not a slave, so being free, right? But look at the, look at the thing that you are free from in this verse. You are free with regard to righteousness. So what worse thing to be free from? That's the thing that you don't want to be free from. When you were a slave to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So if you continue that thought, 
being free in regard to righteousness means having no obligation to do righteous things. Like I mentioned before, having no guilt or shame when you do unrighteous things because you have no obligation to do the righteous thing to begin with. When you do that with, which is unrighteous, you have not that shame and guilt. There may be overlaps with what the world may consider societally good. When you talk to people and they say, oh yeah, so-and-so, they're, they're a good person. I think you actually, I've talked to a lot of folks, um, I guess, I don't know if you would consider it debate, but one of the main things that I hear in terms of debate of Christianity is how can God let bad things happen to good people? And when they use that word good, they're using the worldly definition of good. It's not in Christ's economy, the actual definition of righteousness or good. It's just, oh, well, you know, he helped an old lady across the street. That was, that was a nice thing to do. That was good. Is that, is that righteousness? Is that sin? Is that, is that one or the other? I think, again, there might be minor overlaps, but a lot of times when that word is used by the world, it's the world's definition of what is good, societally good. So bad things happening to quote-unquote good people, they might be kind and nice people, but again, in spiritual standpoint, they are sinners. They are still sinners when you look at that binary. So... There's no mistake that what's being referenced here or talked about here is God's righteousness and the things that align with God's righteousness, not the societal definition of what is good versus evil in the world. So people want to do the sinful, what they would consider fun, satiating the flesh things that, that they want to do and that they see the rest of, of other worldly sinful individuals doing and they want to be able to do it without any shame or guilt of having done it. So in that sense, they are free in regard to righteousness. But again, when I look at that verse, I, I would say what a scary and sad place to be, to be free in regard to righteousness. And the most dangerous aspect of it is that it doesn't feel scary or sad to them, I believe, when they're in it. It just feels like this is where I want to be. It's probably cozy and warm and nice because I'm not going against the flow and I can kind of be together with all of my friends and the rest of the world that is behaving and acting this way. But again, in verse 21, <clears throat> we talked about it before about the fruit. Why is it scary and sad to be in that, in, in, in that place where you're free from righteousness? Because in the eternal economy of God's righteousness, you're not actually building up any eternal fruit. You're not doing anything to further the kingdom of heaven. You're not doing anything to, to plant seeds for the eventual building up of the kingdom and the saving of souls, salvation, righteousness, sanctification. What fruit is being garnered and built up from the works of evil? The answer is none. The only thing that's being worked towards is death. And when I read that, and when I studied on that and looked into that a little bit more, there's a, there's a question that I think arises, at least for me it did. Well, what kind of death are we talking about? Are we talking about spiritual death? Are we talking about physical death? 
I think it can actually be both in a lot of cases. When you look in the Garden of Eden, the onset, the initial sin that was committed, the onset, you will surely die. They ate it and they didn't die. So you might look at that and be like, oh, I guess he was wrong. They started to die because now you have the onset of gradual physical decay and death. And certainly as you look at some sins, you are working towards that. But also there's spiritual death. And again, this is where we kind of need to step back and realize that I'm not talking about that sliding scale again. If you're truly saved and you are truly secure in the hand of the Father, you are a saved, born-again Christian, and you sin a lot, as we all will, that you're going to be spiritually dead at the end of the day. I think that is a lie that Satan would have you to believe because he would love to have you in your mind torn away from that fellowship with Christ. The, the power of the blood of Christ is too much to be outdone by our sins here and there. Again, that's why Paul would say, so should we just keep sinning? No, we shouldn't. Don't let yourself fall into that temptation either. You have to answer all the little questions. However, if we do, as much as we strive against it, if we do fall into that, we're not working our way towards spiritual death. We've already been saved and we are still garnered into the, or grafted, excuse me, into the family of God and headed towards spiritual life. But again, as I mentioned before, while we're doing those things, we're not garnering any fruit for the kingdom of heaven. So we need to make sure that we strive towards those things. But for those who would stay in the world and never accept the free gift of salvation, we know that ultimately staying in the realm of sin and heading fully down the path of sin, there is spiritual death at the end, the second death. So that, again, I think is, that's why it's, I, I think it could be a little bit of both here. But I don't want it to be, again, misunderstood that this is some sort of, you know, ammo that people who believe in losing your salvation or things like that could, could be used in this, in this context. Um, but when we're doing those things, when we're partaking in sin during that time, for that time period, we're not doing the righteous acts that actually yield fruit. So we should not continue in sin and should actively fight against the fiery darts of the devil. Remove ourselves from situations that we know would lead to temptation that we could ultimately fall into and actively work towards being slaves to righteousness. So as we continue down here a little bit more, the end of those things is death. And then verse 22 But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, excuse me, eternal life. Much more appealing and beneficial in every way. I think we talked about it a little bit this morning. If you you told somebody this, would you rather have death and, and, and eternal suffering or would you rather have this fruit that leads to life and eternal joy and peace i mean what do you think they're going to pick that that when you present it that way that's an easy answer 
I, obviously, I want, I don't want, no one wants eternal death and, and suffering and, 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 and that type of thing. But when you scope into what that actually means in day-to-day life and how you have to live and how you need to be set apart and sanctified once you're, once you're saved and you're grafted into the family of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, it becomes a very different thing. Because again, now they're not able to live the way that they want to live and be free of the guilt. So our sinful flesh might not find any gratification in it, but in terms of, of sanctification and purification and working towards eternal life, there's no better way to do it. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life, not death or eternal spiritual death either. So, as I mentioned, you know, you're set free from sin. It doesn't unfortunately mean that we're free from the presence of sin. We have that to look forward to. When we go home to be with the Lord, whether we go home to be with him, he comes to take us home to be with him, we will be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we will be free from the presence of sin when we are given new bodies. But until then, we inhabit sinful flesh. And so we must fight the good fight every second of every day to make sure that we are acting and living as slaves to righteousness for the sake of the one who died for us on the cross and shed his precious blood for us. And again, that classic verse that you all well know at the end there, verse 23 of chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. A couple of things in this verse. McDonald actually had a little... uh, in, in his commentary, the believer's uh, commentary, he had a little, I would call it, I guess, a trifecta of dualities. I know that that sounds way too technical, but it was three things, and there's juxtapositions in each of two different things. So the masters in this verse, and this is a very succinct summary verse at the end here, the masters are sin and God, right? As you look at these two sides of the equation, sin and God. The methods are wages and the free gift. And the aftermaths are death and eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you look at the word wages, it's something that you earn. That's something that you earn. When I go to work, I'm paid a salary. That's my wage for the work that I put in. I put in this work and I get these wages. So realistically, when we're living in sin as slaves to unrighteousness, we are putting in sinful acts and we're earning for our acts death. We are earning those wages. But on the other side of that, you know, that, that duality there, it's not the wages of righteousness. So that, again, is speaking against any who would say that the more good that you do, the better off you are or the more good that you do. You can work towards your own salvation by doing good things. Because again, what is good? It's not the world's definition of good. It's God's definition of what's righteous and right and good. 
but it's not wages. It's not, you're not actually getting anything for the work that you're doing. It's the free gift of God because there is no work that we could do the wage for which would be eternal life and salvation. That is only something that could be wrought through the blood of Christ. So it was freely given to us by the work that the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross. And then the end, of course, eternal life. And you have, on the other hand, you have death, spiritual death or otherwise. And I think it's neat to see there, too, at the end of the verse, eternal life. And it's not just that's where the chapter and the verse and everything ends. It's eternal life in a person because it was him who did it. It was his blood and it was only through him that it could be attained. The eternal life is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that is specifically mentioned there, and it's beautiful to see. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So there's a lot kind of crammed into these verses here. It's kind of a smaller section here in chapter 6. But I think I would reiterate the, the exhortation that you can take from this as believers. Not to let Satan convince us that we're on a sliding scale and that we can... You know, he wants to take us away from Christ. I know in my personal life that when I sin and I feel that guilt and that shame, the first thing I want to do is not go pray to the Lord Jesus Christ because I'm ashamed. I want to hide from him. Like the people in the Bible that want the mountains to fall on them and cover them. I'm ashamed of what I just did because I sinned against the Lord and and against God. I don't want to talk to him, but that's, that's what we should do. That's what he wants us to do. He would, he would love to just wrap us up and remind us that he sent his son to die for us on the cross for those types of things. But Satan would love to tell us that he doesn't want to talk to you right now. You just did that. That's disgusting. You just did that to him. You, like, give it a while. Let it cool down. You know, just take your time and then we'll forget. And then we'll be separated even more. And we'll, well, I, I'll certainly forget because my memory is terrible. But to go to God and... In the first place, when we're in that temptation, I guess I could even just keep backing it up and backing it up. Look for those times when you might be in that temptation and avoid those completely. Avoid putting yourself in those circumstances. And if you do fall into that temptation, stay close to Christ. Immediately repent. Go to him in prayer. Tell him that you're sorry. Again, I feel that that's the mark of a true Christian is that you feel that guilt. It's not like we're going to stop sinning miraculously again until we're with him. But if we do, to spend that time with him and let it, even in that act, draw draw us closer to him and cause us to, to walk as slaves of righteousness and not as slaves to sin. So let's just close in a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that You sent him to die for us on the cross. And in doing so, in the shedding of his precious blood and taking all of our sins without time into his body on the tree, he made it possible for us to be grafted into the family, joint heirs with Christ. We thank you, Father, for what that means for us, for the joy that we can have, especially as we take a step back and we realize what we were headed towards, what spiritual death actually looked like and what we actually have now as slaves to righteousness, being sanctified, 
looking forward to eternal life in the presence of the Lord Jesus, joy, and to be, to be with him and at a point where we are no longer in the presence of sin. And Father, we just pray for the grace and the strength to, while we are in the presence of sin, live each and every moment and each and every day as slaves to righteousness, to run from that temptation and to run to you, Jesus. Pray to you for the strength to fight against temptation and sin, and even if we fall into it, to run to you in repentance and love. We thank you, Father, for all that you do for us. We thank you for your son. We thank you for this time together this morning. We thank you for your word. We just praise you and pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.